for one thing, I sent them the wrong verse. And that's going to become quite evident as we go, no, no, that was coordinated, so obviously I sent the wrong verse. It was supposed to be chapter 8, um, but that really doesn't matter at this point, but you're going to be confused as to why that verse was read when we go through today's sermon. So I apologize for that. That is on me. Twenty years ago today, we awoke to a new world. And it's fascinating to me as I've reflected on 20 years ago this past week that there is no one in our youth group that was alive when September 11th happened. That there is no longer a teenager in the BYG that was even breathing at the time of September 11th. Twenty years ago yesterday, four coordinated attacks on the United States were orchestrated by terrorists affiliated with Al-Qaeda. They hijacked four commercial airplanes that they either used or intended to use as weapons against our nation. One plane was flown into the North Tower of the World Trade Center at 8.46 a.m., a second plane was flown into the South Tower 17 minutes later at 9.03 a.m., and both 110-story buildings eventually collapsed. A third plane was flown into the west side of the Pentagon at 9.37 a.m., and a fourth plane was successfully hijacked, flown in the direction of Washington, D.C., where it was believed to be targeting either the White House or the U.S. Capitol. But the passengers on board had heard of the other attacks, and so they intervened and tried to retake the plane. As a result of their efforts, that plane crashed in a field in Pennsylvania. All told, nearly 3,000 people died as a result of the September 11th attacks, and it remains the deadliest terrorist attack in human history. I was 21 years old when it happened, a junior at Harding University. That morning I was at work. I worked for Sherwin-Williams, and I was delivering paint when the first plane struck. I had arrived back at the paint store in time to catch the news and watch the second plane hit. And right now, you can remember where you were when it happened. Picture where you were sitting or, or where you were standing or who you were with or in what building you were at and what you were doing, you can picture it. It's ingrained, it's ingrained in your mind. And the world's never been the same since. 21 years old. I wasn't in ministry yet, but I've often wondered... I've often wondered what would have been my sermon the following Sunday if I was a preacher at that time. And this morning, as we reflect on such a life-altering event 20 years later, I've decided to share a lesson I hope I would have been able to preach in the immediate aftermath of that horrendous day. Now, I know I introduced a series on Acts last week. We'll resume that next week. I didn't want this weekend to go by without speaking to something that so many of us still remember and that affects us still to this day. And when I reflect on September 11th, I'm reminded that we live in a fallen world that is susceptible to evil and suffering. 
And sometimes it can be very difficult to reconcile the existence of God with the presence of evil. For centuries, the question has been posed, if God is good and in control of this world, then why does he allow so much evil and suffering to continue? And what we need to understand is that reconciling the existence of God and the presence of evil is like driving a car down a curvy mountain road on a foggy night. In order to arrive at your destination, you have to stay between the known boundaries. Although you can't see everything in front of you or even in your peripheral view under those circumstances of driving down a curvy mountain road in a foggy night, you know that you can arrive at your destination if you stay between the yellow line on your left and the white line on your right. And the same principle must apply to our investigation of the relationship between a good God and an evil world. You see, as long as we stay between the boundaries of what we know about God and what we know about the world, then we can arrive at a destination that at least makes partial sense out of the presence of evil and suffering. So this morning, let's examine some biblical truths that will serve as those boundaries directing us toward a destination of understanding why evil and suffering persist in this world. I want to start with the first boundary, the first biblical truth boundary, and that is this. God is not the source of evil. In James chapter 1 and verse 13, James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. James' primary point is that all temptation comes from a source other than God. God does not tempt anyone. But James doesn't stop there. James says that God cannot be tempted by evil, meaning that God has no association with that which is evil. James can base such an assertion on what is said about God in Psalm chapter 5 and verse 4. Psalm chapter 5 and verse 4 says, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. See, God doesn't associate with evil. Evil is contrary to his nature. In fact, if you look at James chapter 1, after telling us that, that God cannot be tempted by evil, he goes on in verse 17 of James chapter 1 to say that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What James is saying is that God cannot be tempted or cause temptation because of his inherent goodness and because of his immutability. In other words, since God is the very definition of goodness, you, you, can, you can think back to Jesus saying no one is good except God alone. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 18, since God is the very definition of goodness, and since that will never change, because God himself declared in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6 that I, the Lord, do not change, since God is the very definition of goodness and that will never change, we can conclude that he's not the source of evil. 
In fact, this understanding seems to have influenced what John wrote in 3 John verse 11. Do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. When John wrote that third letter, he's instructing his readers to imitate good, not evil. And who does he conclude you have to imitate in order to imitate good? God. Because God is the source of all that is good, not the source of anything that is evil. And if we don't do what is good, we choose to do evil. And in so doing, we are ignorant of God, intentionally or unintentionally, because there is no relationship between God and evil. So as we consider the relationship between God and the presence of evil, we must stay within biblical boundaries. And the first of those boundaries is the fact that God is not the source of evil. But if God is not the source of evil, then who or what is? And that leads us to our second boundary. Our second boundary actually has two parts to it. Part one is that evil is a free will problem. We first must acknowledge that God created human beings with free will, with the ability to make our own choices. And in so doing, it produced an unavoidable byproduct. The very existence of free will, the fact that God gave us free will, produced a byproduct that couldn't be avoided. And that byproduct is the ability for us to choose evil. You and I are capable of making the wrong decisions, making the bad decisions, making the evil decisions. And you can look through human history and see plenty of individuals who have chosen to do evil. Free will, the ability to choose, comes with an unfortunate byproduct the opportunity to choose evil. Now, this does not mean that God is the source of evil. We've already established that. You've got to think being the one who gives us the option to choose between good and evil is not the same as being the one who originates evil. As one scholar said, the source of evil is not God's power, but, God, but, but mankind's freedom. So to some degree, evil is a free will problem. The source of some evil in this world are the choices of some individuals. I mean, go back to the Garden of Eden. Notice the impact that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil had on mankind. Mankind was unfamiliar with evil until Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was the fruit of of this tree that God instructed them not to eat in chapter 2 of Genesis, verses 16 and 17. It was the fruit of this tree that the serpent said would open their eyes so that they would know good and evil, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5. It was the fruit of this tree that once eaten did in fact open the eyes of Adam and Eve so that they knew they were naked. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7. And it was the fruit of this tree that once eaten caused mankind to become like God in their knowledge of good and evil. 
Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Thus it was the, the evil choice of humans to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that brought about the awareness and existence of evil in this world. So to some degree, evil is a free will problem. But we cannot ignore the fact that evil is also a devil problem. The Bible doesn't limit the evil problem to mankind's freedom of choice. It also associates the presence of evil with the presence of Satan. Think about it. Who introduced man to this option of choosing evil? The one who, according to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of this world, the serpent. He is the one responsible for introducing mankind to an evil choice. And this should not come to, to us as a surprise, considering the fact that no less than ten times in the New Testament is Satan referred to as the evil one. Jesus prayed for his disciples not to be removed from the world, but to be protected from the evil one in John chapter 17 and verse 15. Paul instructed us in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 16 to take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Paul indicated in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 3 that the Lord is faithful he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19, we're told that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This characteristic, this title that's given to Satan throughout the New Testament, it, po it positions him in direct contrast to God since God is the Father of lights from whom come every good and every perfect gift, as James chapter 1 and verse 17 says. So as we consider the relationship between God and the presence of evil, we must stay within biblical boundaries, the second of which is that evil's source lies in the influence of the devil and the evil decisions made as a result of man's free will. That's its ultimate source. There is one third boundary we need to keep in mind, though. And the third boundary is this, that God is greater than evil. God is greater than evil. Now, I just pointed out that, that Satan is identified as the evil one, and that sets him in direct opposition to God, who is repeatedly defined as good. But just because they are opposites does not mean they are equals. Do you remember what Moses said to Pharaoh after, after Pharaoh begged for the plague of frogs to be removed? You can see this in Exodus chapter 8 and verse 10. Moses said that the frogs would be removed the following day, but then he added this. So that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. There is no one like the Lord our God. His point was that God is unique. God is 
one of a kind. God is unparalleled, unmatched. God is distinct and extraordinary. Since no one is like the Lord, that means Satan is not the equal to God. Satan is just a created angelic being who is significantly inferior to God. In fact, the closest entity that could be equated to Satan is the archangel archangel Michael, who in Jude verse 9 is said to be contending with the devil, and who in Revelation chapter 12 is the leader of an angelic army at war with Satan. And it's precisely because Satan is inferior to God that John would say in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4, that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now think about that for a moment. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Who is in you? In the grand scheme, you could say God, because it is His Holy Spirit who dwells within you after you receive salvation according to His will. Who is He who is in the world? Considering that Satan is identified as the ruler of this world in John chapter 12 and verse 31 and the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, it seems logical that he is the one who is in this world. And so what 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4 is telling us is that God is greater than evil since he is greater than the evil one. And it's this third boundary that should ultimately affect the way we perceive the presence of evil. See, what, what's significant about God's preeminence over evil? In other words, knowing that God is greater than evil, it doesn't prevent evil from happening, so how does this knowledge benefit us? How does it change our perspective about evil and suffering. There are two things I want you to realize. Because God is greater than evil, that means God can produce good results out of evil events. Paul made such a declaration in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 when he wrote this, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, Paul's not saying that those who love God will be protected from experiencing bad things. What Paul is saying is that God can take our experiences with evil and our experiences with suffering, and He can produce something good from them. And I want you to think, didn't He prove that at Calvary? Look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. In the introduction to this letter, Paul writes these words, Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. He says, Grace to you and peace from, our, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Paul indicates that the reason Christ suffered on the cross is so that our sins could be forgiven, and as a result, we could be delivered from an evil world. Or to say it another way, so that we can inherit eternal life absent 
evil and suffering. See, when you reflect on Calvary, when you reflect on what happened at the cross, it's a constant reminder that God can make good things come out of evil events. Because as one preacher said, the cross teaches us that God can bring good out of evil because evil hung Jesus on the cross, but God used his death to bring about our salvation. God can produce good results out of evil events. And realizing that God is greater than evil should not only cause us to accept that as truth, but it should also cause us to accept that God will get the last move. I want you to think about what we know about God based on Scripture. All of those stories in the Bible are there for a reason, and they teach us about the character and nature of God. Think about God and what you know about Him. When Pharaoh seemingly trapped the children of Israel by the Red Sea and was prepared to annihilate them, Moses lifted up his staff toward the sea, and God had one more move. When a giant seemed unbeatable and the Israelites seemed destined for Philistine conquest, a young shepherd boy showed up with a sling in hand and God had one more move. When the entire Jewish race seemed doomed for annihilation while in Persian captivity, a young Jewish girl became queen And God had one more move. And when the religious leaders orchestrated the murder of God's Son, His disciples placed His body in the tomb. And God had one more move. God always gets the last move. According to Scripture, God's next move is to judge and eradicate evil. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10, we're told that a day is coming when the devil will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. And not only will Satan be judged and punished, but so will all advocates and perpetuators of evil. Because according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So just because God hasn't eradicated evil yet does not mean that he won't. I like the way one scholar explained it. He said, criticizing God for not eradicating evil yet is like reading half a novel and then criticizing the author for not tying up all the loose ends of the plot. A day is coming when God gets the last move. And if we'll just keep ourselves between those boundaries we talked about earlier, it's not hard for our perspective on evil to trust God gets the last move and that God can make good results come out of evil events. Now this isn't everything that one needs to hear on the subject of evil and suffering. 
And I have to say I'm indebted to some much better preachers than myself for some of the material that I prepared today. But I want to close with this. I want you to imagine that tomorrow is the worst day of your life. Maybe you start your day off at the dentist undergoing a a painful root canal. On the way home, you get a call from one of your children, your teenage children, one of your driving children, who informs you that they just totaled the car which you paid off last month. And then when you get home, you get an email informing you that your stock portfolio has taken a nosedive. And later that afternoon, your spouse receives a phone call from the doctor revealing that he or she has cancer. And so from start to finish, that day was like the the title of that children's book, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. That was your day, tomorrow. But then every day for the rest of the year, life was absolutely terrific. From September 14th through December 31st, every day was absolutely perfect. Maybe the insurance company reimburses you double what your car is worth, and now you're able to go out and buy a new car without financing it. Your spouse's doctor calls back, and the cancer diagnosis was incorrect, and there's nothing to worry about. You get promoted at work to your dream job, and now you're making so much money that you'll be able to retire five years early despite your stock portfolio nosediving. Your marriage is ideal. Your health is fabulous. You win a 10-day Caribbean cruise that you'll get to enjoy during Christmas break. And then New Year's Eve comes around and someone asks you, so how was your year? What would be your response? I I bet you'd say, oh, it's been fantastic. It's been great. It was wonderful. And they might say, but hey, didn't you have the worst day of your life back on September 13th? And you'd say, yeah, that was a horrible day. But it paled in comparison to the rest of the year. The rest of the year was fantastic. So when I think on the whole of the year, it was a great year despite having the worst single day of my life. See, the same will be true in heaven. That's not to deny the reality of your pain in this life. It might be terrible. It might be chronic. It might go on for all X number of years of your life. But in heaven, in heaven after 54,684,532 days of pure bliss and with an infinite more to come, if someone asks you, how has your existence been? You're instantly going to say, it's been absolutely wonderful. Words cannot describe the joy and delight and fulfillment I've experienced here in heaven. Someone might say, but didn't you have a a really, really tough time back there on earth? Weren't things miserable before you got to heaven? You might say, yeah, that's true. Those days were painful. But when I put them into context, in light of all God's 
outpouring of goodness to me. Those bad days aren't even worth comparing with an eternity of blessings and joy that I experience here in heaven. That's what Paul was saying when he wrote Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see, trying to make sense out of the presence of evil and suffering in a world that is created and controlled by a good God is not our ultimate objective. Our ultimate objective is to live in such a way that we will inherit an eternal existence without evil and suffering. That takes place in the presence of a good God. And to live that way is going to require us to stop focusing on that which is evil and to start focusing on the one who is good. And I'm certain there's still some of you who are unsatisfied. Some of you are sitting there thinking, since evil will be eradicated when God gets the final move, why is he taking so long to make that move? And the answer to your question is that God hasn't made the final move yet because there is still someone he wants to save. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 7-9, through 9, Peter said that the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And he goes on to explain that the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, the ultimate question you should ask yourself is whether or not you have received salvation, because God just might be waiting for you before He makes His final move. This morning, I wanted to take time out to explore the subject of evil's persistence. Because 20 years ago, we saw one of the worst cases of it in our country. And the truth is, we don't know when it's going to rear its ugly head again. But we know we live in a world where evil persists. And we simultaneously live in a world that's under the direction of a good God. It may be hard to wrap our mind around that sometimes, but again, our chief goal is to trust the one who's in control, knowing that he can bring about good no matter what circumstances we face, and knowing that there's a day coming when he gets the last move. The ultimate question right now is, are you ready for him to make the last move? Because we don't know when he's going to make it. Scripture tells us that that day and hour is unknown. So are you ready? Are you ready for him to make the final move? You may to yourself think right now, yeah, I'm ready for evil to stop being real. I want him to make the last move. But are you ready for the judgment that follows? That's the key question. And if you're not ready for that, then we invite you to come. Make things right. 
do what you need to do to be prepared for eternity while together we stand and sing.